This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, I'm Nicola McLeod. This is Good Question PEI, and I'm going to be honest. We actually had another episode planned for this week, but after the show launched and we started hearing from all of you, there was one question we got over and over. Hi, I'm Tony Gladstone, and I live in Crapo. Why can't the PEI government make the bridge free or a little bit cheaper for PEI residents? I'm Naomi Bree, and I live in Albion, which is just south of uh, Montague. Why do islanders have to pay uh, to cross the Confederation Bridge when it's uh, part of the Trans-Canada Highway? Hi, my name is uh, Chelsea Gilbert. I'm living in West Copet. Why doesn't the government give an incentive to islanders who are taxpayers to help them cut down on the cost of the bridge. My name is Mary Ann Dykeman and I live in New Haven. There was a statement made at some point that we would have a $20 a trip fee for the bridge. I'm kind of wondering what happened to that. And those are just some of you that we heard from. It's clear that the idea of paying to come and go from the place that you live, it can be pretty controversial. Ask Islanders, it gets them fired up especially now that the toll is over the $50 mark. So is this a new phenomenon? (laughs) I don't think so. (laughs) You know, thinking about um, historically and how in the 1800s people had to go on ice boats across up until we actually got ferries and people, it was really dangerous going across the ice. Apparently the the fee to go across was $2.50 if you wanted to ride, but if you were actually put a harness on, you could get out and push and pull for $2. That's Lori Brinklow. She's an assistant professor at UPEI and the chair of the executive committee for the Institute of Island Studies. Now, our bridge opened in 1997, but not everyone wanted it. Here on PEI, debate about the idea of what they called a fixed link crossing was fierce in the 1980s. In the 1988 provincial election, there was actually a question on the ticket. Are you in favor of a fixed-link crossing between Prince Edward Island and New Brunswick? 40% of voters said no. But the 59% who voted yes secured the ease of passage that we have off-island today. But okay, back to Lori. Basically, she studies island life, and she actually just wrote a book about the way that bridges change islands. So yeah, this has been going on for a really long time. And um, one of the definitions of island is that you're surrounded by water. So getting transportation on and off the island is always going to be front of mind for any islander in the whole world. It's interesting because the bridge offers a sense that it's not as difficult to get off the island or on the island, right? But that barrier of $50.25, it really hits home Do you hear in your research that resentment come through? Like some of the folks I talked to said the fact that this is part of the Trans-Canada Highway and they have to pay over $50 to use a portion of the Trans-Canada to drive on something they feel is part of their tax dollars. Oh, I think it's really deep-seated for sure. And especially when you're seeing other bridges in Canada that are being built for way more than what the Confederation Bridge cost and they're free. Same thing happens in Newfoundland, that ferry crossing from uh, North Sydney to Port of Basque. That's an extension of the Trans-Canada Highway, but you have to pay a whole lot more for that. (laughs) And Vancouver Island, same thing. They have these same conversations there because to get from Tawasin or from Horseshoe Bay over to Nanaimo or Schwartz Bay on Vancouver Island, you still have to pay. So So yeah, it's something that people are wondering, 
why do we have to pay and pay so much? So now you've written this book, The Bridge Effect. What is The Bridge Effect? (laughs) There's a whole lot of bridge effects. (laughs) All of the things that happen to communities because they are now linked by either a physical bridge or we're even taking it one step further to be uh, metaphorically linked through the internet. Some islands are being emptied out because of demographic changes, aging, and um, schools are, there's not enough young people to keep schools together. And so at some point, there's a tipping point as to when an island is going to be not viable anymore. And so for some islands, the bridge actually allows them to remain viable. In other cases, with the um, advent of internet, and uh, especially after the pandemic, that people could work remotely. So a lot of folks were actually um, settling on an island, working from there, and contributing to the actual viability of the island. The Faroe Islands, for instance, is um, islands in the north, and they are tunnel mad. They connected most of their islands through all of these networks of tunnels. Now it's really easy to get from one island into the where the airport is or the capital city, but that means that um, the, the community is losing its sense of community because it's so connected now to the mainland. So it's a push and pull all the time. And it also affects how people feel about the fact that they are an island, um, people's sense of identity. So there's something about islands, and this is what I love to study, love to talk about, about what is islandness and what are those conversations that people have about being on an island and what is the island effect and thus the bridge effect. Can you talk a little bit about um, some of the fears that islanders maybe had before the bridge came in? There was, you know, a whole campaign pushing back against the idea of a fixed link. Where does that come from? Way back, I mean, it goes way back in history because Prince Edward Island was an island, we got to become a province. People often wonder why, when you're so small, do you have all of those powers of a province similar to Ontario or British Columbia or Quebec? And it's because we were an island and we were set apart and people just, it was so independent and that sense of we can do this together, we're all in it together, we'll work together, sometimes, sometimes not. Being an island is a dance between, you know, being separate and being connected. During the the conversation around whether the bridge should be built, there were talks about safety and security. What's going to happen if, I remember um, there was a cartoon, what if all the riffraff from the mainland were to come? Um, The RCMP expects 25% more tourists on PEI after the bridge is built, and they expect the influx of workers on the bridge to bring special problems. You're going to be... um seen an increase in probably uh, drinking offences, uh, driving and drinking offences. You might, uh, if alcohol is involved, you will see an increase in uh, possibly assaults, etc. All the spin-offs of, of that sort of thing will probably be more than likely increase. Um, And what is it going to do to our sense of working together? What's it going to do to uh, our sense of the fact that this place is ours, that the beaches are all going to be filled? There's going to be way too many tourists. On the other hand, you had economic advantages that the bridge brought. If we didn't have the bridge, all of those big wind turbines could never have been brought to the island, so we couldn't have wind turbines. There were just too many trucks and 
boatloads of potatoes and stuff like that. All of those things that it just was really hampering our growth. And since then, we've been able to, you know, we couldn't have done the kind of growth that we've had without it. Similarly, immigration. People, if they knew that they were, couldn't get on and off by a bridge, they might not have moved here. From my research, it doesn't seem like there are many other or any I could find examples of large infrastructure projects Mm -hmm. where the population is kind of not only expected to pay for its initial cost, but also to maintain it. Quite often islands, they they have this inferiority complex versus at the same time as superiority. They know that it's the best place in the world and, you know, how can people can't understand that. But at the same time, they're always feeling put upon by some other. They're being othered in some way that factors into what it, why do we have to keep paying this? You know, it was a deal that was made by the federal government. And so often, um, our self-determination is hampered by being part of the Confederation of, of Canada. And so, you know, having, knowing what our powers are as a jurisdiction, a provincial jurisdiction, and being able to use those, trying to work in tandem with the federal government, I really hope eventually that we can come to some kind of a, a deal where we don't have to pay or pay as much. There's so many islands in the world that, um, Islanders get to pay differential rates, you know, like the Shetland Islands. If you have a card that says you are a resident, you pay, I think it's a 40% discount on airfare and ferry. The Oland Islands in um, Finland, it's free to ride the ferries if you live there, and it's covered by people's taxes. And so, you know, there are examples all over the world where actually residents are, they do get a preferred rate, and sometimes it's free. Like Lori mentioned there, this all goes back to a deal. When the federal government decided to connect PEI to the mainland, it struck a deal with several private companies and their shareholders, all packaged under one name, Straight Crossing Development Inc., or SCDI. The government owns the bridge, and it contracted the company, who then had to design, build, finance, and operate the bridge for the next 35 years. In exchange, Ottawa agreed to let Straight Crossing keep all the bridge's toll revenues, which started at $35 in 1997 for the entire length of that contract. Good morning. Hi. Hi there. I'm doing a podcast episode about why Islanders have to pay for the bridge. Oh, yes. The main question. <laughs> Hi, I'm Alexis Renaud, the general manager of the Confederation Bridge here on PEI. We are currently sitting down in our offices in Borden-Carlton. So these are the offices of uh, what we call the Bridge Operating Building, which uh, has all of our uh, bridge control room with all of our cameras and uh, as well as all of our uh, administration uh, people. So how did Straight Crossing first come to kind of, I guess, be involved with the Confederation Bridge? So when the government, uh, I guess, launched their tender in 1987, we were part of a group that uh, formally submitted their project. So we submitted the bridge at the time. Uh, There was another project, I think that was a tunnel and some kind of hybrid tunnel bridge situation. The government selected our project based on various components, uh, one of them, of course, being the cost. And uh, that's how we well, were the organization selected for the construction, the operation, the maintenance, uh, the financing as well uh, of the Confederation Bridge. Where does that money come from? So uh, 
There is a subsidy from the government every year, a payment, uh, which is the equivalent of what they had paid at the time uh, to the ferry uh, when we took over. So that goes straight to the construction. There is also the toll uh, system that uh, generates revenues, and those revenues are used for both uh, some of the construction costs and then the operation and maintenance of the bridge itself. So that initial cost to build the bridge, what was it? It was uh, around the $1 billion, uh, mark. And was that paid off at the time, or are the tolls that Islanders are still paying today, or, or everyone is paying today, um, still going towards paying off that, that billion dollars? So this was financed privately uh, through bonds, and uh, so the government didn't advance the money. The, I guess us as CDI did advance the money, so we are currently still repaying uh, that debt from back then. Using the tolls? Using the tolls system, yeah. Every year, there's adjustments on those tolls. How, how is that all calculated? So it's a formula, actually. It's a 75% of a year-over-year uh, consumer price index that is uh, given by Stats Canada. And both this year and last year, the, there was no increase to Islanders uh, because the federal government came in to, to subsidize that. So in that case, are, are they giving you the money to offset that cost? Yes, absolutely. So instead of an increase at the tolls, the government decided to step in and uh, we were more than happy to work with them and uh, get, uh, I guess, those uh, tolls frozen and uh, the government did pay the difference. I find every time I drive to Borden and, I, and you kind of come around the corner and you see the, the span and the bridge going all the way to New Brunswick, it's always so impressive what a, a massive piece of infrastructure it is. How much money every year um, goes into actually maintaining it? Uh, I can't give you like the specific amount, but I can tell you that, uh, yes, it is a major infrastructure. Uh, we're talking 12.9 kilometers of concrete asphalt. We're talking about electrical uh, electronics that goes into the bridge as well. And uh, we're talking about a specific environment, uh, salt water, which does erode or is more aggressive towards uh, anything that we build. So like a lot of that money is going towards maintaining the bridge and operating it. So it's uh, either a lot of inspections, a lot of like small repairs if they need to be, asphalt uh, replacement if they need to be, patches, whatever. And the company does generate revenue every year. Where does that revenue go? Is it shareholders or is it privately held? How does that all work? So we are a company. Uh, so those revenues are going, first of all, to pay for the construction. Uh, like I said at the beginning, then uh, to the operation and maintenance, and uh, then the shareholders, if there is anything left, uh, may get something out of it. So the shareholders are uh, Straight Crossing Inc. and Vinci Concession Canada. The operating costs of the bridge, like you mentioned, the construction, the, the maintenance, all of this, does it really matter to the company whether that money comes from tolls or whether it would be some sort of like subsidy from the feds or the province? Now, what matters to us is really the uh, how we use the money. Where it comes from is a matter of right now contractual requirements. But uh, what we need to make sure is that well, we have the money to be able to fulfill our contractual obligations and that 100 years design life that was outlined in the contract. What are the other contractual obligations that, that you have to meet? Well, the main one is making sure that when we hand over uh, that piece of uh, infrastructure to the government in 2032, that uh, we still have uh, the 75 years lifetime uh, that the government can expect out of that uh, infrastructure. So yeah, that, that, that Passover that you mentioned that happens in, sorry, did you say 2032? 2032. So what will happen? How, how, what does that transition look like? Well, it's 
still to be like exactly detailed like you know this is the kind of discussion that's going to start very fairly soon to figure out what that's going to look like actually in, uh, in practice the idea is that basically uh, on May 31st 2032 we hand over our assets so uh, the confederation bridge we hand over our equipment and stuff like that and uh, basically the government at that point has the obligation I guess to take over and uh, carry out all of the operation and maintenance do you foresee the company still being involved in some capacity or will they, what, what happens then? I can't really speak to that. Like it's so far in the future and this would be, if there is any other, like contractually, there wouldn't be any more implication from SCDI at that point, but anything is still, I guess, left up in the air as far as what exactly gonna happen and how that's gonna happen. So this is gonna be talks with uh, Transport Canada as we move forward. So Islanders have this love-hate relationship with the Confederation Bridge. On one hand, we can come and go with relative ease, and it keeps us connected to the outside world. Because of that, we've seen population and economic growth that keeps the island viable. On the other hand, it's $50 to drive 13 kilometers. And it's the federal government that decided that users of the bridge, through tolls, would be the ones to pay off the initial construction the interest on those loans, and the millions of dollars a year in maintenance. But that contract is coming to an end. That's just eight years away. So what happens then? Even Alexi says he doesn't know what the federal government's plan is. I reached out to Transport Canada. They sent me back a long statement. It said, in part, that Transport Canada is diligently assessing and exploring options for future operations of the Confederation Bridge, but a decision on that matter has not been made. But one thing we do know is that at a billion dollars, the Confederation Bridge was really expensive to build. But Canada has built more expensive bridges since then, and ones where the users don't have to pay. Here's one of our question askers this week, Chelsea Gilbert, again. She recently moved here from Montreal. A lot of people can't afford this extra cost of taking this bridge. Like A lot of people have hockey tournaments in Moncton, and it's an added expense to families who are already struggling because income is lower here. It sort of makes you feel like a captive citizen. When you drive around in Montreal, you don't really have to think about where you're going. There's no added cost to your trip. And Chelsea is not the only person left scratching their head when you compare PEI to Montreal. One of our senators has been harping on this for years, and he says the issue, it's rooted in politics. Percy Down, Senator from Charlottetown. Well, there was no problem uh, with paying a toll on the bridge. Uh, Islanders very much appreciate the fact that we have the bridge. Nobody wants to go back to uh, the year-round ferry service with icebreakers and the corresponding delays because of weather. There was a long-time policy that you paid for what you used, and it was under those conditions that the bridge came to Prince Edward Island, and a toll was part of that package. Islanders understood that because we paid in the ferry, so we would continue to pay in the bridge. But in 2015, the government announced that the new bridge owned by the government of Canada being constructed in Montreal that was scheduled to have tolls would not have any tolls. That bridge cost up to $5 billion to build, and we're paying over $50, and the bridge in Montreal is free. Both of the bridges are owned by the government of Canada, and it's grossly unfair that Canadians are treated differently depending on where you live in the country. So 
a simple question, maybe. Why is it that islanders currently pay for the bridge? Well, partly a political problem. In 2015, the NDP leader and the then liberal leader, now Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, announced that they would take the tolls off if they won the election. They won the election, took the tolls off. Uh, We were forgotten in that process, and uh, many of us have been trying to advocate that we should be treated equally to what has happened in Montreal. Have you seen any movement? Do you think the is the political time right now to do something about it? Absolutely. It was a political decision back in 2015. We have a federal election coming up. Uh, it should be a political issue again. It was an issue in the last provincial election. The Premier, uh, Premier King made some commitments. Uh, there's been growing support. The PEI Fishermen's Association, uh, the City of Summerside Council passed resolutions. In the short term, We've had success. The the local MPs have pushed and have been able to achieve uh, a freezing of the tolls for the last two years. They would have gone up substantially. That's an acknowledgement by the federal government that the toll is the hindrance to Prince Edward Islanders. It's a hindrance to people trying to export from the province. Farmers trying to sell their potatoes outside PEI don't pay the additional cost that the farmer in Kapolei, New Brunswick, pays. People going for medical appointments, I hear about this constantly. People having to take their children to Halifax or for their own personal appointments in Moncton or or, uh, Fredericton is a problem. It's It's a real hindrance to tourism. And as I said earlier, it's grossly unfair. So if you've got all of these folks on board in this example you're you're illustrating in Montreal, do you think more islanders being vocal about this would change the tides? Absolutely. This is my biggest disappointment with the whole file. The number of people who've been silent uh, are not taking a position. Uh, in Quebec, they had unity. Everybody went on the same page, the consumers, the citizens, the mayor of Montreal, the premiers, local MLAs, MPs. We want it built. We don't want to have any toll on it. And they got what they wanted. In PEI, it's been a struggle. There's been a whole bunch of groups that have been silent. You know, the PEI legislature has not passed any unanimous motion to this end. So it's been a struggle to that end. There's wide-based public support uh, for the proposal, uh, particularly when the Wood Island Ferry would also be reduced to $20. And as I said earlier, still costing the government less than the, giving the Champagne Bridge. But uh, we don't have that unity that they had in Quebec, which is unfortunate because it might have speeded up uh, a better result sooner than we're going to get it. You have to ask the question, why was this done in Montreal in 2015? And the answer is, of course, they have a lot more uh, uh, seats in the House of Commons than we do, but it was a very competitive electoral environment. We may be into the very same competitive environment in Atlantic Canada in the next federal election, and that's an opportunity for us to have this uh, rectified finally. One person who has recently publicly come on board, the Premier. Last year, Premier Dennis King announced that he was pushing for $20 bridge and ferry crossings with the federal government. I reached out to get an update on how those talks are going. And in an email, a spokesperson said the talks have started and are being led by Transport Canada. The Premier's office says it hopes those conversations continue and move towards a plan to reduce the tolls. They added that bringing the conversation into the public has given it the attention it needs that the success in getting a freeze on tolls the last two years shows that the federal government has the ability to intervene to roll back tolls. 
So will we all continue to pay to come and go from the place that we live? Everyone I chatted with said the voices need to be loud and there needs to be momentum to get the federal government or the federal political parties to pay attention. And just maybe we'll look back on what's happening right now as a tipping point. And that is it for this week's episode of Good Question PEI. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next Wednesday to dive into another question. You can send yours to goodquestionpei, all one word, at cbc.ca. Or call our talkback line at 1-800-680-1898. We read all of your questions and consider them for future episodes. For Good Question PEI, I'm Nicola McLeod. See ya. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.